Hi, this is Brian LaPiccolo. I want to apologize. We lost uh, the first several minutes of the original sermon recording uh, when it was delivered in the worship service. So what I'm going to do now is read the scripture passage and then talk about the content of that original message. And about 12 or 13 minutes into this recording, you're going to hear a shift. You're going to hear a transition in the audio quality. And from that point forward, you will be listening to the original sermon recording as it was preached uh, in the worship service. Sorry for the inconvenience, uh, but I really hope that this blesses you. The scripture reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 49. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. 
But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly body is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is God's word. There is no future resurrection of the dead. Apparently, Paul had heard reports of such thinking within the Corinthian church. It was a popular belief among the ancient Greeks and Romans. I think it's a popular belief in our society today. Uh, There's no future resurrection of the dead. Actually, one ancient Greek playwright had written this, Once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. Now, we've noticed before throughout Paul's letter to the church at Corinth uh, that Uh, there was an ancient dualism that pervaded their worldview, that pervaded uh, common thinking. Uh, This ancient dualism was widely accepted. Uh, The idea that the human soul and the spiritual existence was superior and ideal, uh, but that the human body and that the material experience, the physical experience, was inferior, uh, was headed for destruction. Uh, ultimately headed towards meaninglessness. Now Paul, who was a Jew, who was raised and trained from a Jewish Old Testament perspective, uh, had a different assumption than this. Think of what David said in Psalm 16, you will not abandon me to the grave. Rather, Paul, uh, from the ancient Hebrews, from the Old Testament scriptures, had a holistic view, a unified view of spirit and body that both were created as good by God in the image of God, and that God was set on redeeming both. But at the last day, uh, no, no Jew was prepared to accept Christ's resurrection in the middle of history. That was something they expected to happen on the day of judgment, on the last day. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright explained that for very different reasons, it was equally hard for ancient Jews and ancient Gentiles to accept the resurrection of the dead. But Gentiles, and we know that the Corinthians were largely 
uh, Gentile believers, recent converts to Christianity, were repulsed by the idea of a bodily resurrection. They literally thought of resuscitated corpses walking around like zombies. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, at times when I was able to sneak music videos on MTV, I remember Michael Jackson's thriller video and how all these corpses rise up out of the graves and, and start dragging their mangled, rotted bodies around the city uh, doing some breakdance routines with, with Michael Jackson. <laughs> but literally, the ancients thought of dead, resuscitated, rotting corpses walking around. And that's why it was outrageous to the Corinthians to think of resurrected bodies. You know, quite often we can dismiss the ancients sometimes, right, uh, for not knowing what we believe we know with all of our advances today. C.S. Lewis actually called this chronological snobbery. But like us, the ancients saw everything around them dying, decaying into what we now call entropy, and they thought death, decay, meaninglessness is all around us. Death is inevitable. Destruction, decay are inevitable. It was just as hard for the ancients to believe in resurrection as it is for us. You know, I looked up several definitions in the English dictionary for pessimism. This was a definition that most intrigued me. Pessimism is a lack of hope or confidence in the future. Let me be more personal. Pessimism is a lack of hope or confidence in your future. Despite the many misconceptions in our society about what Christianity fundamentally teaches, and despite the many misapplications by Christians themselves on what Christianity teaches, true Christianity Vintage biblical Christianity conquers pessimism. God intends nothing less than the full renewal of not only your soul, but even of your body. And I think what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this middle portion of it that we've read today, we're going to see that the Bible's view of our bodies transforms our pessimism into hope. The Bible has a very high view of the human body. And today we're going to look at the science of resurrection. Now, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to quote I'm not going to quote many scientists, unfortunately, and I'm not going to offer you equations and formulas or theories. However, we do have a fabulous book table with resources for you on how to relate faith and science. A very important issue. Uh, please take advantage of the book table and its resources. But today we're going to look at the science of the resurrection, the ethics of the resurrection, because resurrection impacts our behavior now. And finally, the hope of the resurrection. The science of resurrection, the ethics of resurrection, and the hope of resurrection. Now the science of resurrection, according to Paul in this passage, is frankly beyond our observation. We cannot observe now the science of our future bodies. 
and our future physical existence. Now, Paul challenged their assumptions, their cultural worldview assumptions. And if you look at verses 35 and 36, he essentially quotes their assumptions. He says, but some of you will ask, how are the dead raised? You can almost hear some slight mockery in their perspective. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person, is Paul's response. He's basically saying to them, look, you're comparing apples to oranges. And he responds in verse 37 by saying, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So he wants us to think about seeds, right? The ancients are going, how in the world would people rise from the dead and why would we want that? And how, how is that supposed to look? What are the mechanics of that? What's the science of that? And Paul says, hold on, think of, think of a seed. He wants us to think about seeds. And he says, a body can take on a new form, a new nature, and still remain the same body. Stay with me. He uses the idea of seeds. Think of a kernel of corn, right? A kernel of corn becomes something that looks very different. A corn stalk. Both are quite different, and yet they are the same body. The seed becomes the stalk. Think of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' natural body for 30 years bled, was pierced, suffered death. Jesus' risen body, read all the Gospels, Jesus' risen body ate food like you and I eat food. Jesus' risen body was able to be touched and approached, and yet Jesus' risen body was able to pass through locked doors and somehow was able to appear and disappear before people's eyes. The same body of Jesus and yet a new nature a glorified nature. Think of your favorite book. What if somebody told you that a new edition of your favorite book was about to be released? Not just a reprint, but a new edition with maybe a new forward by the author, maybe new chapters, revealing other things going on in the plot that you've never been aware of before. Appendices with all this extra information about your favorite characters and this plot that you're so intrigued with. Not a reprint, a new edition. The same story, but new details, more information, going deeper, more richly involved and, 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 and captured with this amazing story that you love. Same story, new information. And so Paul says, it is like this with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. We are raised in glory. We're sown in weakness. We're raised in power. We are sown a natural body, but we're raised a spiritual body. Now, these are people who thought that spirituality was everything and that the whole goal of existence was to get rid of your disgusting, dirty body, even though you can do whatever you want with it for now. But Paul is saying, no, hold on. God's plan for your perfection is not to rid you of your body, but to transform your body along with your soul. 
And so as I read this, Paul is telling me over 2,000 years later, Brian will arise the same Brian, but a new nature. Same Brian, but with a new nature. The same Steve, the same Sarah, but with a new nature. The same Ken or Ann, but a new nature, transformed. So since our current science cannot observe, uh, obviously, what is to come, let's not compare apples to oranges. C.S. Lewis, in his very helpful book, Miracles, said this, that at death, matter, which has been organic, begins to flow away into the inorganic. But he says resurrection involves the reversal of that process. He goes on to write that entropy, by its very character, assures us that though it may be the universal rule in the nature we know, it cannot be universally absolute. He's saying that although we're used to entropy and decay, that cannot be absolutely true all the time. He goes on to write, a nature that is running down cannot be the whole story. And he talks about Humpty Dumpty falling off of a wall. Well, that's, just, that's the middle of the story. How did Humpty Dumpty get onto the wall? And how did he fall off of it? And how is he eventually going to meet the people who supposedly can't put him back together? Where did they come from? What's the end of the story? We really only know the middle. And so C.S. Lewis says, a nature that is running down cannot be the whole story. A clock can't run down unless it's already been wound up. There must have been a time when processes, the reverse of those we now see, were going on. A time of winding up. The Christian claim is that those days are not gone forever. Pessimism says things will only ever be running down and disintegrating, including you. Hope says the same energy that got things going is on reserve to do it again. Look, we know that our bodies are the physical manifestations of complex genetic codes. We know that now. Well, regardless of how you die, regardless of what condition you end up in on your death, God has your information on file and he will bring you back. And he can bring you back. But until then, the proof of it is one man's resurrection. That is what Paul is saying. And so he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now here's where it gets even more personal and practical for us. The ethics of the resurrection is not for the future, it's for now. The science of the resurrection, what we're going to know and understand and observe about our glorified future bodies, that's for later. The ethics of what that means is not for later is for now. Resurrection has everything to do with how you act now. Future glory is the reason why everything that you do now actually matters. In all of Paul's 
instructions in this ancient letter. From the very beginning, from chapter one, through all of these complicated, challenging, difficult, awkward issues we've been reading about in this letter, as he's going through all of it, he keeps, you'll notice it, read it again, he keeps hinting at the future, which theologians call eschatology, the study of the last things. He keeps hinting at what's going to happen someday, what's going to happen when God finally brings justice and order when Jesus comes back, he keeps bringing it up almost as if he's been waiting to get to this chapter to talk about our resurrection. Essentially saying everything I've been talking about, conflict, culture, eating, drinking, sexuality, wisdom, knowledge, boasting, it, it all matters because Jesus is coming back to transform our lives and our very bodies. Your body, though it is natural, he says, though it is of the dust, because we were formed from dust, Genesis tells us, your body nonetheless is in training for glory. It's because a tiny seed may grow into a magnificent plant that you don't neglect the seed, do you? What do you do with a seed? If you want it to become a plant, if you want it to bear fruit, you plant it, you water it, you nurture it, you monitor the conditions of the soil, and this is just as important, you wait. Now it's out of your control. You wait for its transformation. Under Armour's logo, protect this house. Right? Now, for the Christian, that becomes more than just about athletics and personal fitness. For the Christian, protect this house becomes all about eating and drinking. It's all about our sexuality. It's all about our, simply about our, our physical appearance. It's all about how we medicate ourselves. It's all about the kind of counseling that we seek for ourselves. It's all about how we engage in politics and what we think about political legislation. It's all about what we think of scientific research and how that research is used practically in the world today. We do not worship our bodies, nor do we desecrate them. We do not worship other people's bodies. Neither do we desecrate other people's bodies. Bodies belong to God, their creator, who apparently is not finished with them. So view your life, your thoughts, your decisions, your behavior, which very much is your physical existence. View it all in light of, because of, a coming resurrection. Don't just escape this life because of your coming resurrection and think it's not important. It's very important because of your coming resurrection. So from a Christian perspective, to be a Christian, to be a follower of the risen Jesus Christ is to no longer allow entropy and death to guide your life, but to allow the promise of restoration and resurrection to be your guide every day, your behavior, your ethics. We're not accustomed to thinking this way. We're not. That ancient dualism just has a new cape on. Self-realization, 
self-expression, personhood is praised and sought after, where the concept of the physical body, to steward your physical body, is far less important these days. Our cultural appetite for self-esteem has essentially rejected our Creator's call for self-care. Our obsession with exercise and personal image, our confusion over gender, our reckless sexuality, they actually all come, they don't come from joy. That's the irony of it all. It it doesn't come out of joy and happiness. All of that comes out of pessimism. It all comes from a pessimistic, compartmentalized view of what it means to be a human being. And so the Apostle Paul, in another letter in Romans chapter 6, said to them, based on the resurrection, this is what your behavior and ethics should look like. For if we've been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So he goes on to say to them, here's the therefore. Don't present your members, meaning your body parts, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Look, if the eternal son of God entered into history and time to take on a physical human body, you read the New Testament, they're saying, they're telling us again and again like a broken record. No, Jesus was physical. He had a real body like we did. And he rose from the dead physically after dying physically. (laughs) That was really important because the ancients didn't want to think that way. If the eternal son of God entered into history and took on a physical, biological body in which he lived for 30 years, a body in which he perfectly fulfilled all of God's law, a body in which he suffered and died and in a humiliating way bore our guilt, bore our shame, bore the colossal weight of God's wrath for our sins and then a body in which he physically rose again embodied for all eternity. Jesus still has a body and when you see him, He will have a body. If Jesus thought of the human body and took it that seriously, then then his incarnation is a warning and a promise that what you do with your body matters. That how we treat and think of other people's bodies matters. So the hope of resurrection radically confronts our natural pessimism. He says in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen? By raising Christ, uh, the scholar Gordon Fee in his commentary on Corinthians put it perfectly. He wrote, by raising Jesus from the dead, God set in motion the final overthrow of death itself. We're not there yet, but it's been put in motion. Just like 75 years ago was D-Day. And what did D-Day represent? Literally, practically, the beginning of the end of the Nazi regime and subjugation 
of Europe. So was Christ's resurrection 2,000 years ago the beginning of the end for death, its reign, its power over you and I. Christian, look, Christianity is realistic. Folks, this is not pie-in-the-sky stuff, no matter what people will say at a distance. Christianity is very realistic. It's just not pessimistic. Christianity is realistic. You're going to die. You're going to die because you were born bearing the image of Adam who brought us all into sin. We're going to die. The Bible makes it very, very clear. But Christianity is hopeful, realistic, but hopeful. You're going to be remade with Christ's nature. And that's why he talks about, is why he compares the man from the earth, Adam, and the man from heaven, Christ. Because of Christ, because of his death and resurrection, the grace of God offers you as a gift, an exchange, a substitution, the nature of Adam, who has always represented you, for the nature of Christ, who now represents you. And so Paul says to the Thessalonians in chapter 1, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he's talking to them about resurrection because they were confused about it as well. And he's saying to them that he's teaching them these things about the importance of resurrection that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. See, again, you see the realism and the hope, no pessimism. The realism is what? We still grieve. We still mourn the loss of all that was good in God's creation. We grieve We mourn. To not do so would not be human. To not do so would not be healthy. But we do more than grieve, Paul says. We hope. And hope is not wishing for something like better weather for your picnic. In the Bible, hope means solid assurance that what God promises will take place. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The Bible's view of our bodies and our physical existence transforms our pessimism into true hope. So don't let death subjugate your thinking and inform your habits and your plans. And don't let death be the final answer to your doubts, to what you're struggling with and wrestling with. Our bodies Our behaviors matter because God has glorious plans for them. And that is the core of Christianity. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess the same doubts, the same lack of belief that our ancient forebears expressed, Jew and Gentile, Father, it is hard for us to believe in anything else than what we currently see. But Father, give us the ability to think. Give us the ability to reason with your word. Help us to see that what is sown perishable is nothing like what is raised in perishable although we will be the same people. 
Father, I pray for the folks uh, in our lives and in our society who love you dearly, who follow your son, who are dedicated to the sciences and to research. Father, we need their perspective uh, because our culture is shouting into our ears that nothing matters, so everything goes. Uh, Father, we need to think clearly when we struggle with what your word says. So Father, as fallen sinful people, we ask first for the gift of faith to simply trust you at your word. But we ask, we ask Lord, for your kindness uh, that we would encourage each other to think clearly about what your word says and about the world in which we live and what we observe. Thank you for the resources that are on our book table that help us wrestle with these issues. Uh, Father, uh, at the end of the day, we know that it is by faith. It is by faith that we trust you. It is only by faith that any of us in this room are going to believe that we will live forever, that our bodies will be remade and restored someday. Uh, Father, I pray that we would live by faith and with joy, not in fear or pessimism. Uh, All for the sake of your son, Amen.